The Chosen Families Project, where everybody is welcome. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode to the, of The Chosen Families Project. My name is Julian Rabello, and I am so excited about this episode in particular because this is a case I've been working on since this past fall, but more recently I've been working on for the past two weeks. So I want to give you some background beforehand. So this story is on Colonel Fred Carl Schmidt Jr. Now, this past fall, I was in like the basic stages of the project itself. I didn't have the podcast up yet, but I was still doing some of the stuff with the like researching photographs and stuff like that, but I didn't have the formal podcast platform all set up. But my aunt and I had been discussing this idea for this project back and forth. And she remembered that she had a pile of documents and photographs from a property that some of my relatives had found during around the 1990s. And, you know, because of her interest and love for history back then, she had decided to save what she could. And then it's kind of just been sitting around with like, you know, with her stuff. But now, you know, little did she know that I would get in, I would get the gene probably from her for the love for history and family history. And I would use my platform to now be able to, you know, continue her thought process and be able to, you know, give back, you know, for the stuff that she saved. Now, these documents relate heavily to the military work and life of Fred Carl Schmidt Jr. And for the past couple months, they've honestly just been sitting on my desk and I've been going back and forth with some relatives, but I never, you know, I think the hardest part with this project is finding a close enough relative that I feel comfortable with sending a lot of this stuff to. And with this case in particular, because he had passed so with the, um, in the past 20 years, I wanted to make sure I got it to someone who was close enough in the family. And like I said, with you know, I had some more time this summer break, so I decided to actually pursue looking for some closer relatives. Now, with some luck, I was actually able to locate Fred's grandson. And then I had just waited for a little bit because I reached out at first and I didn't hear anything back for a little bit. That's normal. I don't, you know, a lot of these times when you message people, sometimes messages go to spam or things like that. But I was able to hear back and I was absolutely ecstatic. And, you know, then within this past two weeks, I was able to actually send all the files and documents that I digitized first over to his grandson. So I want to dedicate this episode to the legacy of Colonel Fred Carl Schmidt and his family, as well as my aunt for her tenacity and love for history for saving a piece of family history that would have been lost to time. So here is Fred Carl Schmidt Jr.'s story. Fred Carl Schmidt Jr. was born on December 28, 1915 in Newark, New Jersey to parents Fred Carl Schmidt Sr., born 1885, and dying sometime before 1950, and Margaret E. Illing Schmidt, who was born in 1889 and died in 1975. He also had a younger sister named Edma Mina, and uh, she would adopt the, when she got married, she would uh, marry a, a gentleman with the last name Van Horn. She was born in 1909, and his sister passed away in 1994. 
So the family had lived together in the 1920 census at 110 Garrison Street in Newark, New Jersey. Now, this address is really crucial because this is the address that would be associated with the family for almost 100 years and why these documents were likely left behind at this location in particular. In the 1930 census and the 1940 census, he also lived with his parents at that address as well. And I believe by that time, Edna had moved out and had gotten married because she was a little bit young, uh, older. And around that time, you know, back in the mid-1930s, he was valedictorian of his high school class, already showing, you know, he was a very smart individual and a very, like as much of an intellectual as he was. And in 1938, he had graduated Rutgers University in Newark with a full scholarship and he majored in chemistry and biology and had took 144 credits. Now, these documents that I found included Fred's resume from around the, right before he retired, so around the 30th of June, 1968. And, you know, this is when, like, like I said, it was right before he retired from the formal military service. But, you know, I love seeing these type of documents because not only he goes into a lot of detail about his education history, as well as some of the work that he did. So I'm going to read some of those details out to you now. For his education, Fred, um, in 1938, he attended Rutgers University and received a Bachelor's of Science, taking 144 credits. From 1947 to 1949, he attended the Air Force Institute of Technology um, for Industrial and Engineering Administration with that uh, taking 68 credits in that. In, from 1949 to 1950, he attended Cornell University and had received a degree in management for 36 credits. In 1952, he attended an, a service school in, at Air University for as a logis, logistics staff officer for a logistics staff officer course for six months. Then in 1955, he attended uh, Ohio State and had received a uh, taken a course in a business business organization for three credits. Also, in uh, prior to that, he also attended another Air University in 1954 for an as an uh, for an electronics officer course. In 1956, he attended George Washington University for a course in resources management, and finally, in 1963, he went to the University of California for information sciences and command and control service schools. I'm also going to read, he also, with his resume, he put what he did during certain years. So I'm going to talk about some of those positions because it is pretty detailed. So from 1942 to 1947, his principal duties were in supply and services. He restructured supply management system at Wright-Patterson AFB, which resulted in control of reduction of and reduction in consumption of base supplies and he also uh, profitably operated the officers clubs which has been operating at a loss and he managed civilian restaurants around 20 of them grossing around two million per year at the maximum profit permitted at by regulation so from 1947 to 1950 he attended cornell university and then the air force institute of technology from 1950 to 1952, he was the Chief of Supply Division 
at the Headquarter Pacific Division, MATS, and there he established policy, initiated logistical procedures, and directed planning for supply and services for all the stations covered by this Pacific Division of MATS. From 1952 to 1953, he attended Air University and instructed in research and development. From October of 1953 to October of 1957, he was chief of the Electronic Components Laboratory, Directorate of Research, Headquarter Wright Air Develop at the Headquarter Wright Development Center, and he developed and managed an aggressive electronic component program for current and projected Air Force needs. And he was awarded the Legion of Merit Medal, which is the highest honor combatant award from a uh, meritorious service for my performance during this period. I'm also reading the way he wrote it, which I love. He wrote it really detailed. He was such an educated individual and he knew his stuff. And I feel like his achievements should be discussed. And to continue with that time period, he was personally responsible for significant development advances, such as uh, miniaturization, printed circuits, high performance and electronic components used today in missiles, space and aircraft con and space and aircraft control programs he also directed during that time period some of the initial efforts in research and development for solid state components which provided the basis for present capabilities in microelectronics and integrated circuits now this was at a time this was during the mid 1950s electronics and all this stuff were kind of in their you know in their infancy per se so for him to be able to start working on this stuff at this time period was really crucial. Also, to continue during that time period, he also published a handbook and technical reference, which was adopted as basic references for design and standardization of electronic equipment by the military and industry itself. And he supervised 200 military and civilian personnel with a $16 million budget and an average of 120 active contracts. So that was from October 1953 to October 1957. Then from November 1957 to June of 1960, he was the chief of semi-automatic ground environment, the SAGE system project office. He managed and directed the development and engineering of the SAGE system itself. He prepared programs for research, development, testing, and implementation. And he coordinated with using command, other services, and joint agencies. Now, SAGE was being developed as a subsystem by many agencies. And what he did was he implemented a plan by which the SAGE was developed as a single system rather than multiple. And this was the initial Air Force effort for developing an electronic system of this magnitude and complexity on a system basis. He also personally directed the preparation of the first system development plan, which was a system for a system uh, in system design specification, cost analysis, and test plan. He initiated a procedure for coordination at corporate level efforts of major system contractors, which have resulted in effective integration. Then, from the July of 1960 to June of 1964, he was the detachment commander for the Electronic System Division, or ESD, for the AFSC, Ballistic and Space Systems Division. He established the development 
the detachment and served as the personal representative of the commander ESD on all matters pertaining to command and control and communications in support of missile and space programs covering applied research and advanced development and engineering. Then from 1964 to the present of when he had published this resume from in 1968, he was chief in command and control division for the DCS and R&D headquartered U.S. Air Force, and he worked directly with the DOD, Secretary of the Air Force, JCS, other services and government agencies. So now by this point, he had established, I mean, he already had established himself, but this, you know, now he was working with, as a chief and working with high Air Force personnel. And I believe he also had top, uh, top secret military clearance at this point. And he established working relationships that, it, at, that have expedited approval and funding of command and control programs. He was responsible for formulating and managing research and development for Air Force Command, Control, and Communications, or the C-3 system programs. He established long-range Air Force development objectives and translated operational requirements into hardware and software. And he was assigned to HQUSAF specifically to organize and control C3 in research and development. And he prepared the first deve development planning document from which the present technical inputs of the C3 programs were derived from. And he personally initiated and directed the preparation of the original master plan for Air Force Tactical Command and Control, which is now an approved planning document. And he initiated the advanced development program for tactical C3 and obtained necessary funding for that as well. And he organized and was the first chairman of joint service of the joint service office, consisting of senior technical representatives from all services to review and recommend the DDR and E disposition and funding of joint service C3 programs. So this man had a lot of work around. He was very intelligent and had a very thorough record and especially you know within 30 years of his military career he had been able to really establish himself so to continue but with fred's story after talking about, you know, his education and kind of his career, which, you know, is was a huge part of his life. Um, from the 1950 census, he was living with his wife, Mary Ellen Flanagan, on Wheeler Air Field Air Base in Honolulu, Hawaii. Now, I remember his grandson telling me that at this time, I thought they had lived at 110 Garrison Street, but because of his military work, Fred and his wife and his family were often traveling kind of around different areas. Which makes sense, you know, and I believe they had some children in Hawaii as well. And during their lifetime, the family would have three children together. Now, some of my other favorite parts of, were of this set of documents and photographs were the little antidotes that were uh, from Fred's military service work and his lifestyle from and these dated from the early 1940s to late 1950s. So it's a mix of like receipts and other small things that were just found in this pile of documents. But I thought they were just cool little pieces to include, especially because Fred probably had the wherewithal to save all of these. And I just think it's just a cool to talk about some stuff that's dated into his timeline. 
So on July 16, 1942, there was a patient's property card, and this was at the Station Hospital in Fort Dix, New Jersey. On 7-16-1942, at 7.40 p.m., Fred Schmidt um, with, has his rank listed as first lieutenant. Now, it looks like this was like an order for like supplies and things like that. It looks like he had gotten a cap, a belt, a shirt, like a khaki shirt, khaki trousers, and things like that. So this was almost like a request for like a uniform, essentially. And which makes sense that he would have been at Fort Dix, being that at um, he was living in Newark. So and then also uh, from September 15, 1942, there was another cash purchase receipt. He was also um, there was actually two of these cash purchase receipts that I re that were in there. Both list his rank on this document as first lieutenant, and it includes his signature. And it's also some other like supplies and things. One of them is for like a cotton shirt, and it looks like there's some other shirts and things like that. You know, socks other cool little things and the amount of cash that he paid for these items in particular. Then on April 8th, 1943, there was a shipping ticket and it was of supplies. It includes his signature. It lists him as first lieutenant in the Air Corps. And what was interesting is, um, it was a very interesting document. It's from the cosigner was from the first officer's training wing from the military department in Miami Beach, Florida. This item was uh, has a date of April eighth, nineteen forty three, and it was being shipped to Fred C. Schmidt Jr. as, like I said before, first lieutenant of the Air Corps. And the article in particular was a mask, a gas mask, I'm assuming, and a diaphragm. And, he, and it says, I certify that the article listed here on was shipped to me from the first officer's training wing from Miami Beach, Florida. And it's just a little, another cool little document that has his signature as a student officer. And I just thought it was cool to include. Then on May 8th, 1943, there was, um, also I forgot to mention, all of these documents and images that I am including will you can find them in the link uh, for the blog post that I had written. And it shows all of these documents so you can actually view them up close yourself and kind of see, you know, his signature and all that type of stuff. Then uh, in, fr from May 8th, 1943, there's an, he had an insurance for his 1933 Plymouth sedan. You know, that car now is, you know, almost 90 years old. And I included a photograph of what that car would look like today next to the actual uh, policy itself. And it was almost like a payment receipt for the vehicle itself. Then on August 31st, 1943, there was it was also uh, an X card and it noted the payment. And this was likely for his insurance. And there was a name mentioned of both documents, Martin B. Lang, who was, I guess some insurance agent in Irvington, New Jersey from the early 1940s. And it says, your check in the amount of 884 received for which I thank you. I've enclosed the receipt for everything up to now. You were all set up until November 24th when your last payment comes due. That's a long way off. The note card 
the note card has writing on the back and forth of, like on both sides of it, excuse me. And it says, uh, one of the things it says, thanks for your business and with best wishes from yours very truly, Nathan B. Lang in Irvington. So then I also put in the mix here from the 1940s up until 1968, I put some other military documents that I found. They could be dating from earlier in his military career to even later when he was, you know, as from his resume from before, we know he did a lot of planning and all these different, like, procedures and things so it's i'm not really sure when these are from but i just decided to clue them at this point anyway so one was a note for returning car carbon copies of the of acknowledgement of delivery forms and another uh was a notebook discussing different camouflaging methods and it was likely handwritten by fred himself which was really cool Another, I only included some of them, but I think there's around six or seven different notes in the blog post itself. And it says notes on how to organize a combat squadron. And like another, this was likely written by Fred himself. And I think it is so cool to see how he kind of organized and, you know, what was going his thought process and how meticulous he was with his military work. Another little uh, time capsule that I found or a little piece uh, was a note to Sergeant Smith. So this was probably, like I said, around the 1940s or 1950s. And it reads, could you furnish this organization with a few pounds of coffee to be used for the organization coffee pot? Thank you in advance, Captain Springen, or Springer, which I thought was just really funny that, was, that that was included in particular, you know, as a coffee lover, but, you know, something that he decided to save from his work. Uh, one of... An, one of the crucial and probably biggest pieces to this was during the 19, late 1950s or around, a lot of these are from December of 1958. This was a big manila folder and it had receipts of his travel in requ- uh, and requests and his rank uh, was Lieutenant Colonel. And it's, you know, when, you, when I actually looked through that folder itself, I only included one image of it. It was really cool because it had you know, passenger tickets, all this type of stuff. And it was request for authorization of leave of military personnel, all this type of stuff. And I, it was likely from his all of his travels that he did in the military, which I thought was really, really cool. Then on from there's a letter from January 8th, 1959, and the letter is from William Levison. It was addressed to Lieutenant Colonel Fred C. Schmidt at 234 Eagle Rock, Avenue in West Orange, New Jersey, and it's written on a piece of letterhand from the doctor himself, which I thought was really cool. And it, like I said, it was this letter on the top is dated January eighth, nineteen fifty nine. It reads, "Dear Freddie, I was really deeply touched when your mother told me of the great honor that you were that was awarded to you. Only few people." realize that we own our lives and safety to people like you who work so devoted and unselfishly congratulations to you and your family they must be very proud of you and to be honored i am a little proud myself being one of your friends my family joins in wishing you luck sincerely william levison and he was a doctor at 75 or md at 75 lincoln park in newark new jersey
So now I think this is the most important set from this documents. It was another manila envelope and it was dated from the 22nd of July, 1968. And this was for his retirement ceremony and includes the photographs of his retirement ceremony as well as two really beautiful group pictures with his military cl classmates and one of them actually has a list of all the names of the individuals and all the like signatures of the individuals so to remember his resume was dated from june of 1968 and this dates from not that long after, but this was for his retirement. One of the first, there's actually a letter from the Department of the Air Force headquarters from Washington, D.C., and it was, the subject is retirement ceremony. And it reads, number one, the retirement ceremony for uh, Colonels Thomas E. Stewart and Fred C. Schmidt has been arranged for 1145 hours, 31st of July, 1968, in room 4E339. And, and number two, it reads, the DCS and R&D will perform the ceremony. Family and friends of the retirees are invited. And it was signed by Andrew C. Rosa, Lieutenant Colonel of the U.S. Air Force Executive. Now, to summarize from before, you know, I said, you know, during his military career, he worked in research and development during World War II and the Korean War. Uh, Colonel Smith had headed a group of engineers in the Air Force who developed the AWAC technology, or AWAC technology, and Atlas missile. And during the Korean War, he worked as a chemist at Calcoco and developed sodium sulfamide, which is a sulfur compound that stopped excess wound bleeding of soldiers, which is another, you know, another thing that he did. And it's so cool because I'm also a chemistry major, so it's also interesting to see that kind of parallel and what, you know, not only did he do a lot of administrative, he had a lot of administrative work, but he had a STEM background and used that to his advantage to help in every diff which way in the military force. And then he retired from the military with qualifications as both as a chemist, aeronautical engineer, and chemical engineer, which, you know, he didn't, and I'm assuming, you know, even though he had that qual those qualities, he also had a ton of le leadership capabilities, which is just you know beyond. Which in before his retirement, he had such an extensive work history, which is just something that I think he should be given a little bit more credit for. And then after thirty years of distinguished service, he was awarded the Legion of Merit Medal, which is the as I mentioned before, is the highest medal awarded during peacetime, and. His most recent work prior to his retirement in 1968 was with the Pentagon. So he was working with higher up officials in the Air Force, especially. And then after the after his retirement, he didn't stop. He was employed as a chemist with General Dynamics in Rochester, New York, for about three years. And then he went on also to become a professor at North Northern Virginia Community College, where he taught hotel and restaurant management from 1978 till until 1982. Unfortunately, in 1988, his wife, Mary Ellen, would pass away in Fairfax, Virginia at the age of 70 from cardiogenic shock. And after that, he had moved to Delaware, where he had helped manage air traffic, which was a kite company with his daughter. And he was also an active member of the Lions Club in Fairfax, Virginia. Unfortunately, 
Fred would pass away on October 5th, 2004 in Seaford, Delaware. He is buried in Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia. And throughout his lifetime, you know, to summarize him, he was a very educated individual, traveled across the country and left a legacy of, of a military career and being a caring family man. A line from his obituary summarizes him as well. He was a loving father and grandfather who doted on his grandson, and he enjoyed reading and watching football. You know, not only was he someone who was able to have an extensive military career as an intellectual, you know, he was someone who had a very awesome personality and, you know, was able to spread love to the world and especially to his family. And I have to say, this is probably one of the most fulfilling episodes I've done to date on for this podcast. And I actually was able to speak on a call with Fred's grandson for about 30 minutes and who had knew, knew him during his lifetime. And, you know, oftentimes when I return these documents to people, not that they're distant relatives, but they may not have known them in their lifetime necessarily. And, you know, this is definitely the closest, you know, relative wise that I've been able to return to, you know, and it's just kind of, you know, really, you know, it was such a crazy experience. And I got to hear what, you know, Fred thought of receiving everything and being able to look through everything and kind of, you know, who his grandfather was, even though he only met him, you know, later in life, I, it was, you know, later in Fred's life. It was very interesting to kind of see, you know, what his perspective of his grandfather was like based on, you know, because I know he had mentioned that a lot of, you know, with a lot of relatives passing away in his family, he kind of didn't know, you know, for uh, for certain history. But his grandson told me what he did remember was how impactful his relationship with his grandfather had affected his life. And during his daily life, he acted almost as a second father figure for his grandson. And he recalled, you know, memorable drives to 7-Eleven, running errands, things like that. And as well as his grandfather being Fred, being a comic and a jokester, which I thought was another cool little detail to include. And, you know, to conclude, I have to say this was such a wild ride. And it kind of really puts in perspective what could have been lost to history, if not for the fortitude from years ago for my aunt. And I hope through this narrative and research that I had done, I was able to do Fred and his family's legacy justice. If you have any comments, please comment below or contact me at thechosenfamiliesproject at gmail.com. I have a lot of photos and news stories that I'm returning, and I am very excited to see where that goes. Remember that you are loved and that you are always welcome here. Bye now.